When a person professes faith in Christ, there are to be changes that come about in his life because of the consequences of what they believe. Paul states very directly in Romans 12:1 that the only reasonable response of worship that we can have to God's mercies shown to us in Jesus Christ by which we're saved through faith in his person and work is that we should present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable unto him. That's the only reasonable way for us to respond. And we have spent the bulk of our time in closely examining what Paul says about how being such a living sacrifice should work out in our everyday lives. We've spent some time in verse 2 that we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to resist the pressures of this world to make us like it or to keep us like that. And as we learn what God has revealed to us about himself, about uh, how he wants us to, to live in this world, we're changed. Because the truth changes us. And we're not what we used to be. We become convicted about what is right and what is wrong, both in what to believe and what to do. And so as we set our mind on the things above and less on the things in this earth, then uh, our, our minds change, our attitudes change, our behaviors change. We become more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like the sinner we used to be. We're something different. We may not be all that we want to be in the future and shall be in the future, we need to praise God we're not what we used to be because he is transforming us through the renewing of our mind. We also saw that um, we are to be humble within the body of Christ. That's verses 3 through 5. As living sacrifices, we've been made part of something much bigger. We are part of the body of Christ. And every single person in that body is needed for the whole thing to be healthy. There's no basis then for pride and arrogance about, hey, I'm something more important than you. You're not. If that other person was not there, the whole thing would be unhealthy. We need each other. And uh, so we're humble within the body. We strive to work together in harmony. We also saw in verses 6 through 8 the importance of using our gifts. Here, Paul, it's a, kind of a brief explanation, but he goes through what are some of the various gifts that God has given to his people by which they are to serve him. And again, all those things, he's equipped us with these abilities, these ministries, all these things working together so that we can build up the rest of the body. No gift is for yourself. It's for the rest of the body that everybody grows up and matures in Christ. And so as a living sacrifice, being God's servant, we stand ready to serve the Lord however he desires. He's equipped us to do that. We've also seen that a consequence of being a living sacrifice is that we now have to work out how to live in practical living relationships with other people. How does this all work? Now, the general principle we saw in verse 9 was uh, that of agape, this, this sacrificial love that abhors evil and clings to what is good. It's this love of uh, commitment and sacrifice that gives of itself for the benefit of that object that's loved. This is God's love for us, the love we're to have for God, the love we're to have for one another. And because it reflects God's character and his nature, it abhors what is evil. It detests it. It seeks to flee away from those kinds of things and instead clings to the opposite, that which reflects God. And so agape is uh, the major thrust of how we're going to develop all our relationships. But Paul expands more so in uh, verses 10 through 13 on these relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Verses 10 through 13. He uh, expands. We've already seen that as a living sacrifice, 
we as Christians are to have brotherly love for one another, preferring one another in honor. Uh, we consider others as more important than ourselves. And in fact, we step out to lead in demonstrating that honor and showing that preference rather than wait until someone else does it and then responding to that. We lead out in this. The principle of brotherly love is further expanded in verses 11 through 13 with a sequence of specific duties we have to each other. And uh, diligence is the primary duty that we have, diligence without slothfulness. But then Paul expands on that with seven specific areas in which our being a living holy sacrifice demonstrates this brotherly love. And we looked at that being uh, fervent in spirit and serving in the Lord, rejoicing in hope, enduring in tribulation, uh, devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. And we've looked at all of those except the last couple. Now remember, though, that this diligence without slothfulness is the idea that we're ready to quickly respond in earnestness to accomplish whatever it is, whatever task it may be, uh, to promote whatever is out there that would be needful for relationships to be godly with one another. A person who is slothful is the opposite. They're hesitant. They, um, they're, um, they're delaying in their response to do so. And because the Spirit of God has touched our lives, we're zealous in our own spirits to respond to God's Spirit in serving Him in our relationships with other people. And so we seek to serve one another in the Lord as living sacrifices unto Him. That's Christ who now lives in us. What we were should have died. Or we're putting it to death. And it's now Christ living through us to glorify his own name. And then last week we looked at these two, rejoicing in hope and persevering in tribulation. This uh, is an attitude we're to have in everything. As living sacrifices, we're centered in on God and his glory, not our own kingdom and our glory. We help one another in difficult times of life by encouraging one another with the hope that we have in God's promises. And we looked at a lot of those promises in detail last week. If you weren't here, uh, please pick up the tape or get the sermon notes. You can even get them online. Uh, but there's all sorts of promises God has given us, and that gives us hope. A confident assurance of what is going to come in the future so we can live now uh, in the present with a confidence as well as looking forward to eternity with confidence. And that takes in all the practical matters of everyday life as well as his promises of heaven. We also encourage each other in tribulations of life because we know God is still at work. That's part of his promises. He's not forsaken us. He's still doing something in our lives, even in the midst of trials, so we persevere in them. Now this morning we're going to look at the last three duties in that list. Continuing in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Next week we'll look at verses 14 through 21 and how being a living sacrifice affects our relationships with those outside the body of Christ, including our enemies. Now, the word for uh, prayer here is prosuke, uh, and it's a common general word for people verbally communicating to God. Well, what is this communication we call prayer then? Well, some things it's not. First, it's not repetition, the same thing over and over again. Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, when he said, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. 
Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Just running on and on and on does not impress God. And repeating the same thing over and over soon becomes mindless. That's not prayer. That's not true communication with God. Jesus also made a correction in the same chapter, one verse earlier, verse 5, that we do not pray with the purpose of impressing other people with our piety. He condemned it. He said, when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have a reward in full. You pray to impress men? That's all you're going to impress because God doesn't care about it. And he won't be paying attention to it. He wants those who are praying because they're seeking to communicate with him. Prayer is not found in religious rituals or ceremonies either. Uh, And that is a practice that's common in a lot of religions. Some of you come from those kinds of backgrounds. Uh, But neither burning candles or smoking incense or spinning wheels or flying flags. None of those things are communication to God for the same reason they're not communication to you. If someone did that to you, if someone came up to you and stood before you and started lighting candles, what would you think? What kind of bizarre person are you? Now, let's say they come to you and they tell you, here's the things I'm concerned about. Here's what I'm interested. And now I'm lighting this candle to remind you what I just said. Are you supposed to forget as soon as the candle goes out? I mean, honestly, do you think God is so removed from us that he needs inanimate objects to remind us? Remind him of our needs. You see, Jesus already said he knows our needs before we even ask. We don't need inanimate objects as a reminder to him to remember us. He's intimately acquainted with us. He knows our every needs. He even knows how many hairs are on your head. He's got them numbered. You're worth far more to him than the other things of this life. Look through Matthew 6 and see all that Jesus says about that. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's not located in any one building. He has chosen to have his spirit indwell his people. So he knows everything you're going through. He's omniscient, knows all things. God cares for you. So religious rituals, ceremonies, they're not substitutes for prayer. They're not true prayer themselves. Well, then what is true prayer? There's a lot of people made definitions. One of the best ones I've ever seen is that given by John Bunyan. It's uh, quite old now, but it's still good. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. That's quite a definition. Some years ago, I did a series on prayer where the whole sermon was just using this definition because that's really what prayer is. So true prayer is real personal communication with God who created you. And its purpose is found in the dynamics of that very relationship. He is God. You're his creature. Correct? That's the relationship. He is Lord. You are his servant. So it's not you telling God, here's what I'd like you to do. It's rather you expressing your heart and seeking his will. D.L. Moody described it well this way. He said, after we have made our request known to him, our language should be, thy will be done. I would a thousand times rather that God's will should be done than my own. I cannot see into the future as God can. 
Therefore, it is a good deal better to let him choose for me than to choose for myself. Isn't that true? I'd rather have him doing it. So as living sacrifices, we are devoted to such prayer. Our desire is to seek God's will above all else, including in our communication to him. The word translated as devoted here, proskar tureo, means uh, to be steadfast or strong toward, and hence the idea of continuing or being devoted to. Now, this is more than just the idea of praying without ceasing that Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. That's the idea of being in a mindset of prayer at all times. But here, the idea is much more active. Paul uses the same word in uh, Colossians 4.2. And here he says this, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open for us or to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned in order that I might make clear the way I ought to speak. Now, it takes an active mind to be steadfast in prayer in the midst of all the situations that come up in life. It also takes an active mind to remember the things that your Christian brothers and sisters are going through to pray about those things, including, as Paul says here, pray for me concerning the ministry I'm going to have. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about, devoted in prayer and communicating to God, including all these areas. Now, notice this phrase comes directly after persevering in tribulation. Now, there's a lot of things that can distract us, and certainly one of them is tribulation. It can distract us from a lot of things, including properly praying to God. We get concerned about the trial we're facing, the trouble that we're having and how we're going to get out of it or solve it or something. And yet, it's at those very times that the Christian is to seek the Lord and his will all the more. Why? Because in doing so, we are aligning ourselves back with God and doing this kind of prayer. And that's where I'm going to find the solution to my troubles and trials. Going back to even enduring in hope. And as I'm concentrating on that, I'm going to go back to rejoicing in hope because of his promises. Prayer will help me in all those areas. Now, when Paul wrote this, he was actually in prison. Now, for most of us, that would be distracting. I think Joan alluded is when you go into, in there and you hear the door shut, it's a little distracting, right? Paul's in prison when he writes this. And yet he does not even let that distract him from his purpose of communicating to God. We are not to let ourselves become distracted from prayer. Now, I'll add here that it also takes a steadfast mindset to pray when things are going well. Not just when they're bad, but when they're going well. Too often we get so wrapped up in the blessings we're enjoying, we forget to even thank the one that gave them to us in the first place. Steadfastness, a continuing. It takes an active mindset to continue in this kind of prayer. So as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, we should be steadfast, continuing in our communication with our Lord. Are you devoted to prayer? Are you diligent in talking with God, not only about your own life, but also the lives of those around you, including the various ministries they may have? A very practical side benefit of praying for others is that when we see God working in their lives, we take part in it. And that removes all jealousy that, that could possibly be there, or, and it increases our own joy. People can get jealous when they want to do something and someone else is accomplishing it. But if you're diligent in prayer for that person, they accomplish it, you are part of it. 
and you can rejoice with them in what's been accomplished for God's kingdom. You see, we should be excited and thankful for what the Lord has done even through other people, not just through ourselves. So there's no room left for jealousy. Devoted to prayer is one of the characteristics of being a living sacrifice. Now, in verse 13, we find the very next specific duty we have towards one another, which is contributing to the needs of the saints. The saints here are, of course, other believers. Now, in Catholicism, they have a whole host of saints. There are people who are above and beyond what is normal. That's not a biblical definition of saints. Saints are simply comes from the word that means the holy ones. And throughout the New Testament, you can do this simply yourself. Just do a simple word study. Look up saints, see all the verses it, it applies in, and you're going to find that's all Christians. Every single believer in Lord Jesus Christ is a saint, period. You don't have to be canonized by any church. You are a saint when you come to Christ because he has taken and set you apart to himself. You are now a holy one. You're working on the practical application of that. That's why Romans 12 is here, okay? But as soon as that happens, you are set apart for him. You are a holy one. And that's what holiness is. It's set apart unto God. So that's what the saints are. So when we talk about contributing to the needs of others, we are talking about primarily here in this passage about saints. Now, just when I talk about that, that first part of the phrase, contributing, some people get a little you know, uneasy. Is someone going to pick my wallet? Is this a voluntary contribution? Or is this someone taking it out of my wallet? Now, all of us have become used to the fact that our government has become socialistic in this respect. They ask for our contributions under threat of law and jail, i.e. it's not a contribution, it's tax, in order to give to those that the government perceives as needy. Am I correct? Okay, that's socialism. And our government has moved that direction. We're, that's where we are. That's just the way it is. Okay, none of us like that. We don't like it being taken from us. And so if I start talking like this, people get worried as, Okay, now here comes a church. They want to get in my wallet too and take things out. Let me put your hearts at rest. We don't do that here. We don't take from your wallet. Why? Because it's not a biblical principle. It is a contribution. And that's very different here than, than this. The New Testament, they had all things in common, but it was still a voluntary thing. And we're going to see that here in a couple minutes. But there's really three key words here in what Paul is saying for us to do. Contributing, needs, and saints. We've already seen the saints refer to all Christians. And while we strive to do good to all men, it's a special responsibility that we have towards our own family and other Christians. In 1 Timothy 3.8, Paul is very direct about our family responsibility. He says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially that of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We've got a responsibility to take care of our family. That includes our extended family. Paul then goes on to explain the church's responsibility of taking care of the widows who are widows indeed. They don't have a family. And they also have to meet certain other criteria. Now over in Galatians though, Galatians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10, Paul explains our responsibility towards one another. And this is for everybody. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are the household of faith. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that it's not wrong for Christians to take care of one another first before they then give consideration to those who are not Christians. And sometimes we forget that. This is actually a biblical command. Let me ask you a question. What kind of strange love would it be for a man to neglect the needs of his family and meet the needs of strangers? What would you say about such an individual? It's pretty bizarre, isn't he? You see, first he has a responsibility to take care of the needs of his own family and then from his family share what you have with those who are without. And that's what the purpose is here. We take care of our own first meeting those needs and then from that we go and reach out to others. Now the next key word here though is needs and that's very important. If we contribute to the needs of the saints, what are these needs? Well, they're not wants. And too often... People want to describe their needs as their selfish desires. I want this, I want that, I want something else. It is a proper and godly love in which a man meets the true needs of his family and then they share from what's beyond that to meet the needs of others. But what is this that constitutes real needs? Well, first we can be sure from the beginning it does not constitute luxury items and conveniences. Those are not needs. Now, perhaps one of the things that irritates me about the government welfare system is the fact, I mean, none of us like taxes, but taxes are necessary. And we're going to see in a couple of weeks, we need to pay our taxes happily. Now, we're very happy when it's very low. We're even happier, but we have a duty to do that. But I think what irritates me and probably you as well is when they take it from me and give it to someone who supposedly has needs and now their standard of living is higher than mine. Now, every winter we get these stories of people who are getting a um, utility subsidy and they crank up the heat 80 degrees plus in their home so they can walk around in a T-shirt. Now, the rest of us who are paying our own bill, being responsible people that we are, we keep the heat low and we put on sweaters, right? Because we're having to pay for it. That's an irritation, right? Let's face it. There is a need to keep people from freezing to death. But beyond that, you know what? It's a luxury, It really is. And we forget that sometimes. Or maybe about food. Now, it is important that we help people meet a real need. They need to have a diet that keeps them from starving and gives them some general health. Right? Just a basic, general, good diet. But anything beyond that is a luxury. And I don't mind helping people with food. I've done it a lot and I'll be doing a lot in the future. But I always find it interesting. Well, we'll use the word irritating again. You get in line, and here it is, the person, and I'm not against food stamps. They can be very useful. But here's the person shelling out their food stamps, and they got porterhouse steak in there. They got shrimp in there. They've got bakery pies in there. I got hamburger and tuna casserole. I don't like that, right? What's a need and what's a want? What's desire? What's luxury? What's beyond that? You see, as odd as it may sound, I have had people, Diane and I have had people, turn us down when we've offered to share with them the food she was serving to my family. They weren't really as hungry as they made out to be. They rejected what we were eating. Now, another thing to keep in mind in this is to discern the real need instead of the presented want. When I lived in Los Angeles uh, years ago, it was a very common thing that when I went to a gas station, I'd be approached by somebody Basically panhandling. Hey, I'm out of gas. Could you give me a couple bucks so I can get some gas in my car to get on my way? Or 
Can you give me a couple bucks so I can get some, some food? I'm, I'm, I'm hungry and I'm, I'm stuck here. Or uh, if you came out of a grocery store, there would be people, not as you go in, but as you come out, is, hey, I, I could really use some groceries. My family's starving and I've got little kids at home and we don't have any milk. Now, it's a very uh, thoughtful way for them to do it because they're going to catch you when you're in a hurry because they want you to just give out some money. But what's the real need here? In all these years, I've never given them money. That's the wrong thing to do. I've offered them to meet the real need that is there. They need gas. I'll be happy. Bring your car over. I'll fill it up. In all these years, no one has ever taken me up on that. When I come out of a grocery store, I say, great, I got milk right here. You know, I can just send the kids back. We'll get some later because I get, I get the rest of groceries home. But here, you just take what I got here. No, 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 I, I can't do that. Okay, then tell you what, I don't have anything to spoil real fast. It's kind of cold out. Let me put these in the trunk. I'll take you in. We'll go shopping. No, 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 no. They don't take you up on it. What's the real need? I've only had one person ever take me up on taking them out to lunch. Now, that required a greater sacrifice, right? It's be simple. Just give them a couple bucks and I'm on my way. And I feel good about myself. But is that really what the Lord would want us to do? Instead, by taking the lunch, I have the opportunity now to share with them the gospel. And see, that's something we've got to keep in mind as we seek to meet the needs of others. When you meet a physical need, it should be the door to open the opportunity to meeting the spiritual need that's behind it. Don't do the first without doing the second. Well, what do we actually need? Well, 1 Timothy 6, 8, Paul said, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. That's pretty basic, isn't it? Food and covering. But he also went on and said this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. You see, we have a responsibility to meet the needs of people when they're legitimate. But that does not include the sluggard. There is a big difference between a person who is unable to work, and there can be a lot of reasons for that. It could be physical or there's just nothing for them to do, and, and they're striving to find something, they just can't find anything, and someone who will not work. The latter is a sluggard. Proverbs 21, verse 25 says this about sluggards. The desire the sluggard puts into death for his hands refuse to work. You see, the sluggard needs to work first. The third key word in this phrase is contributing. And I want to expand on this. And I say this for last because I want to emphasize it. The uh, word here for uh, contributing is koinoneo. It's the same root for this where we get our word, koin, or it's from koinonia, we get our word fellowship, communion. To share in common. That's the idea here. And so it's translated as to participate in or share in. Now Paul used the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. And there we get a little more understanding of the meaning of this word. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That word share there is the same word here. Koinoneo. Now, is Paul picking on the rich? No. He is simply reminding them why God has entrusted to them what they have. And that goes for you and me as well. In fact, part of the purpose that we are to work is so that we have means by which we can meet the needs of others. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. 
Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Now watch this. In order that he may have something to share with him who has a need. That's why you work. It's not just for yourself. It's so you have something you can share with those who have legitimate need. Now it's important to understand again that this, what contributing is. It's voluntary. Contributing is something that you decide. Paul sets down the principle of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. He was instructing the church in this chapter on how they were to take up a collection that he was going to get when he got there that was going to be given eventually to the poor in Jerusalem. There had been a famine there. There were a lot of poor. So here was the instruction. How are you going to meet the needs of these folks? He said, now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. Each one do, and here's a key principle, as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or of compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Those are the principles of giving, of contributing. It says you purpose in your heart. It's not grudgingly. It's not under compulsion. God wants you to do this joyfully, happily. In fact, it's a strong word there. Hilariously, you know, we have the box in the back. You know, when you put something in there, you got to laugh. Yay! Wow, I got to give something to God, okay? It's not, <clears throat> I paid God off this week, just another bill. That's not how he wants us to do it. It's an act of worship. The motivation in, to participate in me and the needs of others arises out of being this living sacrifice that results in a brotherly love that just exists among us as Christians. It was true in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, 42 and 43, we find that the early church, they were gathering together house to house. It was a miraculous event. Acts 2 is the 3,000 were saved in one day. They were added rapidly. And then right after that, how were they behaving with each other? It says, and all those who had believed were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone have, might have need. Now, this was not a commune. Some have gone to this and, and tried to put Christian communes together. It was not a commune. Communes have rules and regulations. You've got to do this. You can be part of us. You've got to sign it all over to the commune. This mutual sharing was not required. It was done out of love for one another. How do we know that? Over in Acts 5, we have the story of Peter confronting Ananias. Ananias had sold some property and then did not give all of it to the the church for the meeting of his common needs. And what Paul says there when he confronts him is very instructive. In verse 4, he says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, Ananias, it was yours the whole time. You could do whatever you wanted with it. There's no compulsion here. Instead, Ananias lied and pretended like he sold his property, gave everything, in order to win prestige within the congregation. And as Paul said, when Annas says, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. It's the lie that was the problem. Not that he held anything back. He could do anything he wanted with it. But it was a lying. It's as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly, not a compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to do this as an act of giving to him. 
an act of worship to him, an act that demonstrates that you're a living sacrifice and you love one another. No one had to organize this. They did it because they loved each other. And so they freely gave. Let me add one more point here about this. As living and holy sacrifice unto God, we freely give because God finds the sacrifice pleasing to himself. That's Hebrews 13, 16. That's our motive for giving. It's a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And as we help one another because of our love for God and our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, as 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, it demonstrates what's really in our hearts. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love not with word or with tongue, but indeed and in truth. It is the practical application of what's supposed to be there. That's what it's all about. It's simply a demonstration of what God has already placed there, and you're working it out. Now, a practical principle of this is that while some of this does take place within our our church, you give money to the church, and some of that money will be given to those who have needs to meet particular needs they may have. But for the most part, we don't even do it that way here. There's things that come at emergencies. We try and do something about that. But for the most part, this occurs the same way as it did in the, old, in the uh, early church. You're in relationship with each other. You know what each other's needs are. You're interacting with each other. You're assessing those things. And you look and say, just as First John says, I've got the, the stuff of the world here. I've got the stuff that's needed. And, and this, this, this person needs some stuff. I'll just give them some of mine. Because I love them. That's how it actually works. So it's not something that has to be directed with, you know, give it to the church hierarchy and then they, you know, fill out the paperwork and the forms and we'll assess what the real needs are. You know each other. And it's done out of that love to meet the needs that are there. And then sometimes you go way and beyond what is necessary to that which is a great blessing. I've known some of you have done this. Uh, You're very free with it. You see a need and just anonymously you meet that need. That's usually when the church gets involved, it's from that standpoint. They want to remain anonymous. So they want to work it through the church so no one knows where it came from. They just know that someone saw it. That's brotherly love. That's what we're supposed to be demonstrating is living sacrifices. That's loving in deed and in truth. So how are you doing at contributing to the needs of the saints? Does it make you uncomfortable? The money belongs to God anyway. You're simply a steward. What a joy it is to be a good steward of it and please him. And demonstrate our love for one another. The last phrase in this section is practicing hospitality. It flows directly from contributing to the needs of the saints, where it expands this principle beyond the realm of those you personally know to now include those you don't know. Now, the word hospitality here, philoxenia, we've seen these words before, at least one of them before. It's a compound word, philos. Love in the sense of affection. And to that is added xenos. Ever heard of a xenophile? Okay, someone who loves strangers. Well, we just got this reversed. <laughs> we put the philos first. It's someone who loves strangers. Someone who loves, has an affection, has a care and a compassion for those that they don't know. That's what hospitality is. And practicing hospitality is a characteristic that is actually required of elders. First Timothy and Titus tell us that. They must be those who demonstrate this characteristic. It was a characteristic that was demanded of the widows indeed in First Timothy 5. If they're going to be put on the church 
role for help, they had to have demonstrated this and when they, they had stuff and when they could meet needs like this. But 1 Peter 4.9 states that, that this is a duty for all Christians. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. This is something we're all responsible to do and to do it without complaint. Now, it would not be very loving to be hospitable to someone and then later complain about the inconvenience it caused you or how much money you spent. What kind of love is that? That's doing something out of a duty, out of a grudging thing. But we already saw contributing to the needs of the saints is not to be grudging. The same principle carries over here. It's done out of a love for one another. And here, a love for strangers without complaint. Not only that, but, you know, there's an interesting verse over in Hebrews. You might entertain angels. You don't know who might be there. That's exactly what it says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. That may be quite some guest you've got there, but you don't know because they're a stranger. Well, what exactly is hospitality? Now, there was a time when there were not motels and restaurants and that kind of stuff along the roadside. And uh, those few inns that existed were expensive and they could be very dangerous. And so a stranger passing through a town might often just go to the town square and set up camp there. Someone who would be hospitable would go to that stranger and invite them to share a meal or or even put them up for the night. That was hospitality. And there are many biblical examples of this. Think of Abraham and Lot. Both did this to angels, didn't they? Abraham served them a meal. Lot saw them, invited them inside. Not only served the meal, but had them stay with him. It's a good thing he did because they saved his life. Such hospitality was very necessary for the prophets and the apostles. Remember the widow who provided for Elijah, First uh, Kings 17. As he'd go through, she actually even put a room up, a little place where he could just go and not even have to disturb her. Just, you have that place, go in, rest. He provided for her. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, they provided for Jesus and his whole group of disciples. Uh, Luke 10. In 3 John 5, John commends Gaius for his hospitality to him. Paul does the same thing, commending Onesiphorus for his hospitality, 2 Timothy 1 and 16. It was necessary. It was needful. Now, there are plenty of restaurants and motels now, but that does not mean there's not a need for hospitality still among Christians. And we need to be diligent about putting this into practice. Frankly, I think this is an area our church needs to work on. We need to be better at hospitality. It's very easy to say, oh, I'm having hospitality. I'm having so-and-so over that I've known for several years. And in a month or two, they'll reciprocate and have me over. And that's hospitality. That's not hospitality. That's just being friends with each other. I hope you're doing that as friends. Hospitality is doing it for those you don't know. Or those who may never be able to reciprocate. It's extending yourself. Hospitality begins with compassion. It's a compassion that will notice strangers and then it's going to assess their needs. It begins by being friendly enough to talk with people you don't know and then offering your help. Now, that could include inviting them to, uh, to lunch. You know, if we were practicing hospitality the way we should as a church, no one who ever walks through those doors as a guest, the first time they've ever been here to visit, should be able to get out of those doors without being asked at least out to lunch. Or invited to say, well, if you can't do it, I'd love to have you sometime later in the week. You know, I, I can't do it right now. i got this and this. But maybe we can get together and I'd love to have you over. You know, here's my phone number. or Can I have your phone number? They shouldn't be able to make it out. In fact, there should be 
several people who get onto them, you know, and they go out, well, man, I can't get out of this church. Everybody wants me to eat with them. Right? That's the way it should be. And it would come out because of a love we have for strangers. Now, it doesn't have to be a fancy meal. It doesn't have to be steak and shrimp and, or whatever else. It is simply sharing what you have. If all that was is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, that's what you've got. That's hospitality. It's sharing what you've got. The goal is not to impress people with your financial condition. It's to impress them with your love for Christ. That's what motivates hospitality. When we were in California, there was a, one of the families, the Wilsons. Their house was a little dinky two-bedroom, and they had three daughters. Two shared the bedroom. Another one slept on a little porch that wasn't much wider than that. And they had people in their house all the time, including staying over. They would give them their room, and they'd go sleep the, on the, uh, the couches. Or they'd kick the girls out of their rooms and sleep on the couches, and they'd give them the bedrooms. They practiced hospitality. It wasn't present. They didn't have to have the extra bedroom and all the nice amenities. They shared themselves. That's hospitality. Now, that brings up the other idea here. It's not just maybe taking someone to lunch, but it could be providing lodging. Now, Diane and I do this all the time. We count it a great privilege. We have visiting ministers come in or missionaries, and, and we love to host them. And one of the benefits of the, the parsonage is it does have the extra room. There's things that are not benefit. We'll talk about that some other time. But that's one of the benefits of the parsonage, okay, is we have the extra room. And we love to host people. But you know what? We are not the only ones that have to do that. It is something we're willing to share with everybody. It's a, it's a real privilege to host people and, and do that. You want to do that? Let me know. We'd be happy to schedule one of the people coming and let you host them. In fact, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for this summer. Uh, June and July will be gone and we have a parade of people coming through. And you'll have an opportunity to host them. Maybe take them out for a meal. Maybe have them stay over with you. It's a privilege to love strangers in such a sense. How are you doing at practicing hospitality? If all of us were doing so, we would really need a coordinator for it just for the purpose so that everybody gets a fair opportunity to do so. Wouldn't that be neat? We would have everybody so enthused about this, you need a coordinator just to keep it fair. Not a coordinator to make sure someone does it, but just to keep it fair. That would be a great ministry of a church. That would be the thing that would say is we are a church that loves God, his people, because we extend it to strangers, not just to our friends who reciprocate. Because in hospitality, you may never see them again. You might, but you may not. You don't know. It's a love that you have in sharing. So how are you doing? How are you doing at presenting yourself as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God? Are you progressing in being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Are you growing in humility as you better understand your gifts and your place within the body of Christ? Are you increasing in your love without hypocrisy in abhorring evil and clinging to what is good? How are you doing at showing brotherly love in all the practical ways we've talked about for the last three weeks? I pray that each of us are a little more mature today than we were a month ago. And that next week will be even a little more mature. Because that's the goal. We are being transformed. Being molded to become more like Christ in all these practical areas. So don't get down on yourself if you don't match where you want to be. Just saying, says, I don't want to go that direction anymore. Turn and make the next step in progressing 
and putting application into having a transformed mind. Let's pray. Father, again, we're very grateful for your word because it tells us how you desire us to live. And Father, what a joy as we are transformed and begin to live this way because we see you at work within us. Father, at times it's scary. These are things that are unknown to us. Sometimes it means we have to step out and trust you in a way we haven't trusted you before. But Father, thank you that your spirit continues to prod us in those very areas that we might see your hand at work and learn to trust you more. As well as being able to see your hand at work through us in the lives of others. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the changes he's making in our lives day by day. And Father, your spirit who prods us that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And in that way, by word and deed, we'd be glorifying you. In Jesus' name, amen.